the one and only Cliff Richard and the Hi, this is David Ghosty Wills, and welcome to Episode 9 of the We Say Yeah Podcast, a monthly unofficial Cliff Richard and the Shadows fan podcast where we review and discuss every single EP and LP in chronological order, or at least try to. This month, we'll be talking with Erica White, one half of the dynamic duo of Erica and Allison, hosts of the BC The Beatles podcast. As you know by now, on this program, we'd like to have on guests who are lifelong fans of Cliff and the Shads with decades of research and experience to draw from, and we'd like to have on guests who may be experts in another field, but who might be hearing some of this music for the very first time. And I'm really interested in their opinions because A, who knows, they might become fans of Cliff Richard and the Shadows after doing this, and B... It's kind of exciting, right, to find out what kind of reaction this music will get all these years later from someone who's hearing it with fresh ears. Now, if you haven't heard BC The Beatles, I recommend you run over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe and start listening. Their show is really in the vanguard of one of the most exciting things that's come down the pike in Beatles fandom for many years, and that's this influx of women hosting podcasts and writing books and blogs and doing research, all of it surrounding the Beatles, and it's really changing the way we engage with the story of the Beatles in the best long overdue way possible. So if you're a Beatles fan like me, there are a lot of new voices to, uh, to listen to. That said, we have to pop back into the past one more time before we get to this month's show with comments and reactions about last month's podcast with journalist Pat Murphy. And that was on the 1960 album, Me and My Shadows. As you can imagine, with an LP that's so revered, there were a number of comments, particularly on our Facebook page called We Say Yeah, and other Cliff and Shads-related pages where the post was shared. Tim Cooper writes, another great broadcast. Just got around to listening to it. Love all the extra facts that came out, like the stereo version of a track didn't have the guitar solo that was in the mono version. Here's my Me and My Shadows collection. Now, of course, Tim has a massive collection of all this stuff, and he's got all of the different iterations here in a photo on Facebook that you can check out. He says the different cover one is an Australian reissue. The top right is a 1981 European reissue. Really interesting stuff, and I love seeing ephemera like this, and, and especially that tiny little CD down there at the bottom, because that's the one I have. Next up, Mark Cunningham, who's a regular on this program, says, Excellent episode. Me and My Shadows is definitely my favorite of all Cliff's early albums. Excellent review from yourself and Pat. Pat certainly knows his stuff, that's for sure. The song that Cliff did with She's Gone back in 2001 was The Fantastic Blue Turns to Gray. I agree it wasn't a patch on the album version, but it was still fantastic to hear Cliff sing it. I love the album so much that I wouldn't rate the songs individually. The album is a 10 out of 10 for me. It's also good to note that this is the only studio Cliff and the Shadows album that Cliff sings all the tracks and the Shadows play on all of the tracks. Could argue that Reunited was as well, but they were in all different parts of the world and different studios recording that one. So Me and My Shadows is unique. That it is. By the way, Heather Simkiss comments it was the first LP she owned. Graham Ralph says it's my favorite album. Rick Hearn says, this is my favorite Cliff album. I love all the tracks to this day. I love the cover photo. I can't stop staring at it. How about Chop It and Change It and I'm Gonna Get You? Wow. Paul Dickinson writes, the last show about this LP was great. 
After listening to the single, in mono, version of Gee Whiz It's You for the last 60 years, I was amazed how much different the stereo version was that you played on the podcast. A completely different tempo. Every day is a school day. Paul Thompson says, best LP Cliff made. Darren Price, who hosts the Rise Up show over on Cliff Richard Radio, says congratulations to you and Pat for an excellent episode. Me and My Shadows is, along with Established 1958, my favorite Cliff and the Shads album. Keep up the great work. Thanks for that. Rosie Martin says, this was my first LP and I was playing it just a couple of days ago. I still remember most of the words and sing along with Cliff. Baz B. writes, I notice on the album label that the publishers are credited, but not the songwriters. Was this the norm back then? That is an interesting question. Bob Nicholson comments, interesting spot. My copy is the same with the writer's credits on the sleeve. Hmm. Dave Parsons says, there are so many different types of songs on this album, which makes it a great one. I play it regularly. Every track is a gem. Paul P.J. Shakespeare says, great podcast. Ghosty does a great job. Thank you. This episode is fantastic. One of the best albums of early British rock and roll. And I'm probably going to mispronounce this name. Norvald Genstad just says, awesome, with a thumbs up. And I guess that kind of says it all. Now, having read all of those accolades for me and my shadows, it's time to make my confession. I love the record, too. I recognize the album's importance and the uh, creation and development of British rock and roll, but it is not my favorite. We haven't gotten to my favorite yet, and I'm not going to tell you what it is <laughs> until we get there. Okay, a couple of quick things before we get into our conversation with Erica. We're going to be talking about the Cliffs Silver Discs EP, the theme for a dream single, and the Dream EP. In fact, today's conversation might be the most time anyone's ever spent talking about the Dream EP. It's not that well known. During the course of the conversation, though, we reference comments that the Beatles made about Cliff Richard and the Shadows. I'm sure you know the famous one from John Lennon about how Move It was the first British record worth listening to. Paul McCartney called himself the Shadows' biggest fan in Paul DeNorier's Conversations with McCartney book. But there's one quote allegedly from George Harrison, that I didn't bring up in this interview because I couldn't source it. Apparently, George said, quote, no shadows, no Beatles. Now, I've seen this quote referenced hundreds of times in articles written about the shadows and blog posts and in comments, even in a couple of books, but I've never come across the original. And I'm a big Beatles fan, so you'd think I would have seen it by now in my travels. Anyway, if you know where this quote comes from, and if it's real, drop me a line at we say yeah podcast at gmail.com. You can help me solve this mystery. All right. I began my conversation with Erica White asking how her podcast, BC the Beatles, came about. Well, let's see. It came about around 2018, which in podcast years is, you know, centuries and centuries ago. It seems like forever. <laughs> uh, Allison Boron and I um, are very good friends. She used to have an online music writing website called Rebeat. And I was a writer for Rebeat. We were both writing about the Beatles all the time. You know, we're both around the same age, you know, definitely second generation fans were not born or alive when the Beatles were together. Um, and 
we started going to a lot of Beatles conventions and spending time with other people in the community. And at that time, we just kind of felt like a lot of things were missing, that that experience of the second generation fan wasn't really being accounted for yet, especially not in the world of podcasts. And um, on top of that, we were two women, which makes things a little bit uh, rarer even in those mm-hmm. days. Um, and so we decided that we were going to take what we were doing on Rebeat Magazine and just start doing it in podcast form. So BC The Beatles was born in 2018, and we've been going um, ever since then. We try and call out uh, the second generation perspective. We try to um, look at not only the Beatles themselves, but the experience around the Beatles, the experience of the fans, the experience of the Beatles contemporaries even. And uh, so I cannot believe that I don't know more about Clifford. Well, we'll uh, cover that today. You know, I can't even remember how I discovered BC the Beatles. I might have just been looking for Beatles podcasts to listen to, and I, I was probably in shock that I had found one that wasn't hosted by men in their 50s and 60s. Exactly. <laughs> which is most of them. So I found your perspective really refreshing. And the BC stands for because, right? Right. Yeah. We were trying to sort of give that second generation feel um, with the BC, um, you know, kind of like texting language. And then also we wanted to incorporate not just the Beatles. So, you know, there's a lot of things that we're interested in. And why are we interested in them? Because the Beatles. So that's kind of where we got that. And it gives us the chance to kind of talk about Beatles adjacent things, too. Yeah, there's plenty Beatles adjacent about Cliff Richard and the Shadows, not least of which they both recorded in the same studio, Studio 2, EMI London. And it's true that Cliff and the Shads were the big dogs for five Mm -hmm. years before the Beatles arrived. And it's also true that at first, 1963-ish, the Beatles said some flippant things about Cliff Richard and the Shadows, but over time, their opinions mellowed and they wound up saying some positive things. So as a Beatles fan, how much awareness did you have of Cliff Richard and the Shadows? I think the entry to them is that song that George and John wrote called Cry for a Shadow, um, which they said was kind of a pastiche of a Cliff Richard in the Shadows song. And it was a little instrumental. Um, They recorded it when they were working with Tony Sheridan. So it's on some of those very, very early singles. If you can find it, it was re-released on the anthology. And it was always kind of set up as, you know, maybe a friendly ribbing at, at the Shadows. I always thought it was just a very nice, nice song. It was a nice tune. I wasn't really sure where, where the ribbing came from. But you always kind of get the idea when Cliff Richard does come into the story that they're kind of frenemies, especially in this early period. They're in each other's orbit, but they're just not really gelling. Listening to the songs that you sent me, I feel like George probably had more of an appreciation than the others did. But 
maybe they were just kind of rubbing up against one another in an uncomfortable way with Cliff Richard being at the top of his game. And I think he's 80 years old right now. So he was their contemporary, but was so far ahead of them at first. And the Beatles three years later were just eclipsing them. Yeah. And it's really, like you said, in this early period, and most of the dismissive quotes from the Beatles all come from the same book, which is Michael Braun's Love Me Do, The Beatles Progress. Mm -hmm. And that's where it's not only Cliff Richard in the shadows, but even Marty Wilde, Paul McCartney says something dismissive about Marty Wilde, and you're thinking, hmm. what do you ever do to you? What's that all about? <laughs> but did you know that Cliff actually, of his own accord, went around radio stations promoting Love Me Do? How did he? When, yeah, when he was traveling overseas, they would ask him to bring along uh, uh, you know, a British record that he thought was really good and wanted to expose, like, I don't know, in South Africa or something. And he brought Love Me Do along, although he wasn't crazy about the name The Beatles. He said it sounded like something uh, you would tread on. <laughs> so, But there are other connections, too. Of course, The Shadows were famously at Paul McCartney's infamous 21st uh, birthday party where yes. John Lennon got drunk and uh, out of hand. Uh, and they later said uh, this was years before Give Peace a Chance. That was their diplomatic way of putting it. So the songs that we're talking about today, did you have familiarity with them at all? Not much, especially not not much of what uh, you sent me. Um, I think I heard some of it from other people, like Traveling Light. I knew that was a Herman's Hermits song. Oh, that okay. That was recorded, I think, three or four years later. Um, and as I was listening to these songs, I could tell Peter New must have idolized Cliff Richard because you can just hear so much of of that in some of these, you know, Herman's Hermits songs a few years later. So let's start with the first of two EPs we'll be talking about today. The first one is called Cliff's Silver Discs, and the title's kind of self-explanatory. It's a greatest hits compilation. It was released on December 1st, 1960, and it gives you a good idea of where Cliff was at musically in that year. Listeners will be aware that we've covered these songs already, but I really wanted to get your impressions of these songs, having heard them for the very first time recently. And on this EP, we've got two number ones and a song that went to number two and a hit at number three. We begin with Please Don't Tease, which is one of those number ones, written by Bruce Welsh and Pete Chester. Baby, baby, you say you don't. Tell me that you come on I'll give it to you straight right now Please don't tease I thought it was great. Um, the first thing that I got from this was, wow, this guy can really sing. Um, you know, there are a lot of like crooners in the 50s and 60s that have a, a middling range, but Cliff's low voice, his low register really struck out to me. I'm like, this guy is, he's a performer. He's, he's very, um, he's very charismatic in his, in his vocals. He's got kind of the sultriness of Elvis, but with the innocence of like Bobby V or some of those American uh, right. from the 60s and it really did feel like kind of a bridge between the 50s and the 60s i mean right there in 1960 as it was you could totally see this played at a you know a high school dance in a town hall 
in you know some some English suburb. Um, and it was an adorable song. Um, when they got to the guitar break, and of course I'm seeing this very much in the lens of the Beatles, right? Right. Um, and I was thinking, wow, George Harrison must have really idolized him because the guitar break sounded so much like some of the earlier uh, George Harrison guitar breaks. So I don't know if he he was following the career of, I don't know who the guitar player for The Shadows was, but that guy was is excellent. Yeah, that's Hank Marvin. He's really maybe the guitar god of Great Britain. And he's not as well known over here, but if you're like a guitar nut, you'll know who Hank Marvin is. And his predecessor was Ian Samwell, who wrote, the next song, Fall in Love With You. Now, Ian Samwell wasn't as proficient on guitar as Hank Marvin, so he was replaced, but he still contributed songs to the group and even road managed for a time. So it's sort of like the anti-Pete Best story. (laughs) And uh, the song went to number two. What did you think of Fall in Love With You? Fall in love again Fall in I wrote down was dreamy. It has these mm. fun, tight harmonies. It's it's very cute. It's like a more musically mature version of something like Why Must I Be a Teenager in Love? Something like that. Again, it, it felt like that kind of it had that sweetness that uh you know Peter Noon and Herman's Hermits really have. And then Again, I really noticed how he shows his low range. I don't know if he's done that throughout his career. He just has a massive range. But you don't usually hear that deep and resonant a low register in somebody who is the age he was when he recorded this, 20 years old. Yeah. It really stands out. Um, it don't, it's almost like a countryish feeling. Um, I really liked it. And one thing I just want to bring up is... You also uh, were kind enough to send me the covers for all three of these. Oh, yes. Talking about. And this guy is hot and (laughs) clearly a sex symbol. And he looks just a little wild. And I want to point out one thing that I think was fascinating. In not all three of these covers, he is not looking at us. He's looking slightly away. And I don't know if that was just luck that these three all had that attribute, but it made me feel like he's telling us I am so cool that I don't even have to look at you. I know you're looking at me. And it really gave this vibe for what what I expected from him, and I think I got it. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, it's true. You know, Cliff in his day was a major sex symbol, Mm -hmm. and in fact, he still is. You know, they put out a Cliff Richard calendar every year, which shoots up the calendar charts. So even at 81, people are buying his calendar. And in those early days, though, yeah, they would sell him on beefcake you know he would be shirtless a lot and stuff like that and uh yeah he's a very good looking guy in fact when he was a teenager one of his teachers in school told him that when he grew up he should get a job that involved smiling at women <laughs> i feel like you get arrested if you said that now to a kid. 
So uh, let's flip this EP over, and we begin on side two with a song written by Waldenese Hall and Otis Blackwell, who wrote songs for Elvis Presley. And there's a big Presley influence on this number, which got to number three nine times out of ten. Times out of ten, I've told you, and I would tell you just not time again. Just how much I hate you, hold you again and again and again. Little girl, at nine times out of ten, you refuse me, and say that you refuse me nine times again. Oh, yeah. Here was the Elvis stuff. This was a fun little bop. It was so much fun. I think I just listened to it like over and over and repeat the first couple of times because it's just fun. Um, I don't know if he has any skiffle roots with him. That kind of felt a little bit like he was pulling from that tradition in in the UK as well. Um, You know, more more guitar stuff, more stuff from the shadows. I think it's really fun that the band, even though he is the only singer, um, at least lead singer, the band is really prominent and yes, you know, it's not a backing band. It's not session musicians. It is a very strong character in this band. And it's really interesting how they made different parts come out at different times. And they really showed the character of the individuals <clears throat> was the band was the shadows generally the same lineup over time. Um, well, Hank Marvin and Bruce Welsh are really the two constant members throughout the entirety of the shadows career. Uh, other guys popped in and out this iteration of the shadows is the classic early lineup of Hank Bruce, Tony Meehan and uh, bassist Jet Harris. And it's funny you mentioned Skiffle. Cliff was, in fact, in a Skiffle group called the Dick Teague Skiffle Group. And there is, yeah, there is a photo of them circulating. And you see a bunch of guys who look like, you know, a typical Skiffle outfit. And then there's one guy off to the side who looks just like Elvis. So you know that he's not long (laughs) for this, for this band, really, at that point. So the next song and the last song on the EP is Travel and Light. Uh, released in October 1959, and you mentioned Herman's Hermit's cover of this song. I didn't even know that they did a version of it. Got no bags and baggage to slow me down I'm a-traveling so fast my feet ain't touching the ground Well, I just can't wait to be with my baby tonight No comb and no toothbrush I got nothing to haul I'm carrying only A pocket full of dreams A heart full of love And they weigh nothing at all This is better. This is definitely a better okay. rendition. This is written by Tepper and Bennett, Sid Tepper and Roy C. Bennett, who wrote songs for Elvis and for Cliff. And what I've always liked about this song, and it was a number one record, the lyrics matched with the sparse arrangement conjures up these images of, you know, a lonesome guy getting on a train going to see his girl. It's very evocative. Yeah, it really felt like there was this country element that I hadn't heard in any of the other songs. It was almost like a Conway Twitty 
style mm. ballad to me. Um, you know, he had a very scoopy vocals. Again, that that low register. Um, it felt really theatrical to me. Like he was like like you said, like you could kind of see the picture that the song was painting in a you know like in an old movie sort of way. And um, you know, I wasn't surprised looking at some of the videos that you sent me on YouTube to later see that he was singing Phantom of the Opera with the original Christine. Right. Or right. You know, right. Definitely seems like a dude who would love theater. And I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Cliff starred in two West End musicals and then there are a bunch of pantomimes and he did some dramatic uh, roles on stage as well. So that's certainly in his blood. In fact, I sent you the clip from The Young Ones where he's performing Nothing's Impossible and he's singing and dancing in the streets. Um, adorable. He's like a combination of Elvis and Fred Astaire. It was so cool. Right. That's totally in his wheelhouse. And, of mm-hmm. course, uh, the movie musicals like The Young Ones and Summer Holiday uh, and Wonderful Life, I mean, they were big, big successes. So you could have easily put him in West Side Story and it would have worked. And suddenly I found how wonderful a sound can be, Maria. Say it loud, and there's music playing. So, moving on, we finished with Cliff's Silver Discs, which is a good introduction to Cliff Richard, you know, at, certainly at the time, the first ever compilation, really. And now we move on to a single. And this single was released on February 24th, 1961. It's called Theme for a Dream, written by Mort Garson and Earl Schumann. It got to number three on the charts. And it features backing female vocals by the Mike Sams singers. Cliff and the Shadows at the time thought this was very sophisticated because they'd never had female backing singers on a record and thought that was like, that was, they thought that was really cool. Um, yeah, it's a bit much for me. When I dream, I kiss you. Kiss you. Music filled with starlight. Starlight. Every time I touch you. When I touch you. Each and every time a chime rings out. Cause you're my theme for a dream Yes you are a rare and lovely theme You're my theme for a dream So angel It felt like something that very much was of its time It was clearly original, you know, coming from this you know, more contemporary view, I could have absolutely seen this in the soundtrack of the first season of Mad Men, which took place in 1960. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. the, the chorus of girls was a little unusual. It was weird. Right. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how, how, how well they sang. Um, it wasn't my favorite. It was one of those songs where I, I was kind of surprised hearing the, the previous four songs that I was listening to, that this was a single on its own. It almost felt like maybe it was a theme for a movie or something, and it was was uh, in conjunction with something else. But at its, on its own, it seemed like he had much stronger output elsewhere. I agree. And you mentioned Bobby V earlier. Bobby V covered this song a few years later, backing singers and all. You 
are my theme for a dream. Yes, you are a rare and lovely theme. The dreams I dream day and night that your arms are holding me so tight. Oh, when I dream, I kiss you. So that's theme for a dream. Now the B side is maybe oh. even a little strange. Okay, oh my God. so so. Mumblin' Mosey is a song written by Johnny Otis, and it's essentially a rewrite of Willie and the Hand Jive, and that in and of itself would have been okay, you know? Um, lyrically, it deals with uh, someone who has a stutter, and it's played for laughs, and it's just not a good idea now or then. And this was a song that was unavailable for years. It wasn't on a cassette. It wasn't on a CD. It was only many, many decades later that it eventually got re-released. And, um, yeah, there are very few songs in the Cliff Richard and the Shadows catalog that I would say are problematic. But uh, this, this is one of them. I got a gal and she's so sweet. She's the coolest little thing you ever didn't meet I'd be the craziest chick I ever had I just want to think she stutters like mad And she says Mommy, 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 mommy you know, when it started, I immediately thought a hand jive. I was like, oh, isn't this fun? And then I was like, oh, no, what is this? <laughs> <laughs> like, it makes you want to dance. It's got some cool harmonies, but yikes. <laughs> All the way through big fat yikes on bikes. It was wow. I was not expecting that after all of these like sweet, dreamy songs. <laughs> so let's put this single aside. <laughs> okay. Um, let's move on to an EP released in November of 1961 called Dream. And I'm someone, I've mentioned this before on the show, I'm someone who loves standards, especially when they're performed really, really well. And I think Cliff's singing here is superb. The shadows are on point with every arrangement. The performances here, they just really knock it out of the park. It's almost surprising how good it is considering how young they are and all the songs are grouped together thematically because they have dream in the title and there's little guitar interludes between some of the songs like you're coming in and out of a dream the whole project i just wish it was an album i mean it's that good i agree it's i i love i love standards i grew up as a musical theater actor i mean I, I love this stuff. Um, I might have been the only person who was obsessed with Paul McCartney's Kisses on the Bottom from about 10 years ago. Right. And album, I loved it. Um, his voice is gorgeous. He he almost sounds, he has kind of the same quality as like Harry Connick Jr. when he does standards. Mm. It's very smooth. It's liquid. It's just beautiful. He knows, again, with that theatricality, he knows how to interpret these songs. And he's got this amazing band behind him oh oh my god yeah the band itself is is even without him if you cut out the voices the band itself is just there was just something interesting and just stand out in every single song especially with the guitar and but at one point there was a song with an upright bass the drums really make a you know showing like they knew how to write for a band and make it stand out. So it was just, it was gorgeous. I love this whole thing. 
I think they were all songs from the 30s about, right? Yeah, except for the first one, and I guess we can start with that. By the way, the first three songs were recorded all on the same day, May 4th, 1961. The last one recorded on May 12th, 1961. So the first cut on this is Dream, written by Johnny Mercer. And this this is the most recent of the songs on here. It debuted in 1955 in the movie Daddy Long Legs, starring, we mentioned him, Fred Astaire and Leslie Caron. Mm -hmm. And right from the start, again, you know, we can go through these songs quickly because they're just all (laughs) great. Um, Cliff's vocals are inventive and the, the, the arrangement is great. I mean, I don't know what else to say other than it's just great. Dream And they just might come true Things never are as bad As they seem so dream Dream, dream The guitar part, it almost feels like tropical It's a really interesting Mm. vibe. And again, like he really paints this picture. And, you know, I, I, I had the, you know, impression of like, like Sandy in Greece staring out the window, dreaming of her summer with Danny. Like it really gave that fifties floating on a cloud kind of feel. It was gorgeous. The next cut on the EP is all I do is dream of you, which is one of my favorite songs. I know it best from the movie singing in the rain, but it was written by Arthur Freed and Nacey O'Hare Brown, for 1934's musical Sadie McKee. This is another self-assured performance. I'd put this up against, you know, everybody. Mel Torme with a small combo somewhere. This is just as good. You're every thought, you're everything, you're every song I ever sing. Summer, winter, autumn and spring, and were there more than 24 Hours in a day They'd be spent in sweet content Just dreaming away When skies are gray When skies are blue Morning, noon, and nighttime too I'm curious about if he ever talked about his motivations for doing this because as a young 20-year-old, you know, switching to standards like Again, looking at it through the Beatles lens, Paul McCartney would do Till There Was You to make the mothers in the audience feel safe with the Beatles and, you know, kind of give, you know, he was doing it as an act. This feels a bit more authentic, like he really felt invested in these older songs. Did he ever say why he chose to do this? In 1959, Cliff's second album, So just the year or two years prior was called Cliff Sings. And on that album, uh, half of the songs are rock and roll songs with the shadows. And the other half are standards with an orchestra. And Cliff does not sound all that great. Really? He's, to me, and we've reviewed it on on a past show, to me he sounds kind of flat in places. I know at first it was his producer's idea, which was George Martin's big rival at EMI, Nori Paramore. And on the Cliff Sings album, it was Nori's thought 
or actually I take that back, it was the engineers thought that Cliff could really broaden his appeal. And I think what happened on that was Cliff was uncomfortable sitting in a room with a big orchestra. And maybe the pressure was on him to deliver. And he's just far more comfortable with his guys, you know, doing this material. Um, he certainly has recorded a bunch of standards since over the years on various albums. He even has a record called Bold as Brass as recently as 2010. So he was still kind of doing it. When I take my sugar to tea, all the guys are jealous of me. Cause I never take her where the gang goes When I take my sugar to tea I'm a rowdy dowdy, that's me She's a high hat baby, that's she So I never take her where the gang goes When I take my sugar to tea but I still maintain that something must have happened between 1959 and 1961. Either he brushed up with lessons or it's the confidence of experience, but it's night and day. We get to track three. We flip the EP over and track three on the Dream EP is I'll See You in My Dreams, written by Gus Kahn and Isham Jones. And this is the oldest song on this EP. This one dates back to 1924. <laughs> Again, what can we say? The shadows are swinging. Cliff is swinging. Hold you in my dreams. Someone took you out of my arms. Still I feel the thrill of your charms. Lips that once were mine. Tender eyes that shine. Yeah, totally. That upright bass was just kicking. Oh, my God. Another one where the band is just as prominent as Cliff himself. And that brings us to the last song on this EP, which we're both giving a big thumbs up to. Uh, when I Grow Too Old to Dream, a song from 1934, written by Oscar Hammerstein and Sigmund Romberg. And this closes oh God, out. Sigmund Romberg. Wow. I didn't know that. I used to do a lot of operettas and Sigmund Romberg was one of the old favorites. When I grow too old to dream I'll have you to remember When I grow Your love will live in my heart. Yeah, I love that. I mean, these are the songs that I love and more than anything, all the old musicals, the old standards. So I always gravitate to this and he just does it so well. Yeah, I'm right there with you. And again, my big complaint really is that this isn't an album. I mean, there are enough songs with dream in the title or are related to dreaming that you could have put together a really incredible album, but I'll take what I can get. And it's worth noting that this is the first EP of original material that wasn't connected to a movie. So uh, this is kind of an historic release. Um, EPs wouldn't be around for that much longer, but in the future, there are more original and unique EPs to look at. Erica, I want to thank you so much for being on the show. And uh, where can people go to find out more 
about BC the Beatles. Just find the podcast. You can find us at BC the Beatles everywhere, all the socials. And if you search us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, um, any anywhere you get your podcasts, you can find us. Um, we love to hear from people. We love to talk about the things that you know we podcast about. So if you're into the Beatles, come on over, and you know we we'd love to continue that conversation there too. Again, my thanks to Erica for appearing on the show, and we are very fortunate to be continuing our conversations with hosts of Beatles podcasts next month, because Anthony Rotuno hosts the Glass Onion on John Lennon podcast, as well as the Film Gold podcast and the Life and Life Only podcast. He might even start up another one uh, by the time the next episode comes around. And he'll join us to talk about the first two Shadows EPs and two singles, including the song FBI. I've been a guest on Anthony's podcasts several times, talking about Elvis and Marlon Brando and other stuff, really, whatever tangents uh, we, we get into. And he returns the favor by appearing on this program, Guitar in Hand, next month. So until then, send me an email at we say yeah podcast at gmail.com and join us on Facebook at We Say Yeah. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in April. We say yeah. We say yeah.